Welcome to the WMKT Week in Review. Hey there and good morning. Welcome back to the WMKT Week in Review on 1023 and 1033 FM, 1270 AM, Triple Talk, WMKT. I'm Nick Rudy, your host. Got a fun show for you planned today. We are going to have a couple of news stories. We'll see how many we we get to from the past week. I'll be sure to get you the the really important ones before we have a special guest join us to talk about what may very well be the most important story to happen in Northern Michigan this week and potentially even in the past couple of months. Very impactful, not only to people's day-to-day lives as far as um, some individuals as far as work, but also to our uh, economy um, and tourism. And you might already know what I'm alluding to, but we'll hold on to that bit until later in the show when he joins us. So our first story for today, we'll kind of ease into it. John Roth, the winner of the GOP primary for the House 104th seat, should not have been even on the ballot, according to Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Roth had moved from his home in the old 104th district to the newly drawn 104th district to avoid running against state rep Jack O'Malley, who was who's the incumbent for the 101st. But since those lines have been redrawn, uh, he would then be in the 103rd. By the way, O'Malley did win his uh, primary as well in the 103rd. Otherwise, you know, Roth and O'Malley, two incumbents who have time left to run for office, would have had to run against each other. But according to Benson, Roth has missed, had missed the deadline to register to vote at his new address, which should have disqualified him from running. Uh, Aside from a lawsuit, the state can't keep Roth off the November ballot as he was a certified winner of the primary. So generally, sometimes, you know, Secretary of State or whatever, they can just knock people off the ballot if they don't meet the requirements, obviously. But Roth was the certified winner of the primary, so his name is going to have to be on the ballot, you know, other than if they do like an actual lawsuit, which I don't think that they're going to do. Roth has a pretty significant control uh, in that district, it's very, very red. Uh, he did face a very strong primary challenge. He only won by about 4% of the vote and was actually uh, behind uh, Katie Kniss for most of the night. However, he did end up um, later in the evening pulling ahead and holding on to a fairly narrow victory. But there was a significant portion fewer Democratic votes than there were Republican votes. Uh, I think there was about 9,000 Democrat votes cast and almost double that. If I think it's actually over twice as many Republican votes cast. So um, I think Benson and the Democrats might be more interested in, you know, raising a fuss if it was a more formal fuss. I mean, obviously she went to the media with this, but there would be a more formal fuss if this wasn't such a stronghold by Republicans. For instance, over in the 103rd, as mentioned earlier, Jack O'Malley won his primary, but he's going up against a very strong candidate, Betsy Kofia, who um, has you know served in uh, Grand Traverse County government for several years, has more name recognition. You know, again, Betsy Kofia is a Democrat, um, has more name recognition, and Grand Traverse County um, is more Democrat leaning than the uh, the district that Roth is running in. And so, for a matter of fact, Kofia received more votes in the Democratic primary than O'Malley did in the Republican primary. It was very close. It was only by a couple of hundred votes, if I remember correctly. Um, So, again, voter turnout will be higher. So the the gaps could be wider or narrower uh, in the general election. But, you know, just wanted to to make that point. 
You know, last thing I want to say about this story, interestingly enough, is Roth, for his part, said that when he changed his driver's license address in time, he thought he changed his voter registration. And Benson's not arguing that the, the, the driver's license address was that was in time, that was correct. But she says the records say that the registration didn't occur until after the election uh, registration deadline. And uh, I just want to say as a note, personally, you know, I actually really don't know what happened, obviously, but I've moved several times for college and had to change my address several times at the Secretary of State because the online thing never works for me. And verbatim, this is what happened when I went to the Secretary of State. So I went and got my driver's license address changed for the umpteenth time. Um, you get the little sticker to put on the back of your driver's license. And I specifically asked the clerk, um, the lady at the behind the desk, I was like, hey, can I get my voter registration changed uh, as well? And she said, oh, don't worry about that. We automatically do that when you come and change the address for your driver's license. And so that is what she said verbatim. That's what I said verbatim. Um, so I then, again, still don't 100% know what if Roth is accurate in saying that he just assumed that or it was, you know, just neglect on his part. Um, from my experience, they've always registered me to vote uh, whenever I go in to change my driver's license. And again, that's what the lady said verbatim. I don't know if that's the policy at that specific branch, if that's the policy at all secretary of states um, statewide, if the clerk simply, for, you know, that was helping Roth, um, I was you know, maybe she or he uh just simply forgot to register him to vote. Um, it was a simple, you know, clerical uh, clerical error, um, or it, it could have been a host of things. Very likely, it was an honest mistake either by the clerk or by Roth. Um, but all I know is that every single time that I've gone in, um, and I've gone to the Petoskey location, and I have gone to the Mount Pleasant location, they have automatically registered me to vote when I change the address on my driver's license. So hopefully that helps clear the air up a little bit. Again, just because those two locations do it, I guess may not necessarily mean everyone's everyone across the state does it, but I would suspect that, you know, that's a policy that would be enacted at all the locations, but not exactly sure. All right, this is the big story for today, and this may not be a very popular story either. Uh, so on Monday, the defense in the alleged plot to kidnap Whitmer uh, they rested their case on the ninth day of the trial. The defense leaned heavily into the allegations that the FBI entrapped the men playing audio and reading text messages between informants and FBI agents. John Penrod, who was a Delaware state trooper who worked on the case with the FBI, was confronted with text messages in which he called Croft, one of the defense, uh, you know, one of the defendants, a coward, among other things. Defense attorney Blanchard also played audio of FBI agent Hank Impola telling an informant, a saying we have in my office is, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. And then later in the week, the verdict came in. After a quick jury deliberation, the final two men in the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer were convicted. The lawyers for Adam Fox and Barry Croft Jr. said they will file an appeal, which may result in a third trial now for these two men. Which may, which may, What really remains unique about this case is three sets of two defendants— in the case, all have had vastly different outcomes in their trials, which I don't think the criminal justice system can explain away. Uh, we're not at this moment even arguing guilt or innocence, but the outcomes have been so vastly different. The inconsistencies of the outcomes are so vastly different. I really don't understand how you can explain that. Um, two men, the first two, 
took plea deals to get more lenient sentences and have testified against their former friends and actually just breaking over the past 24 hours. One of the uh, the prosecutors has asked for one of the men that testified to get even further reduced sentence to around from I think it was 36 months to uh, now even lower. Um, and then, all right, so the two men took plea deals to get more lenient sentences and testified against their friends, make it even more chopped off of their sentence. Uh, two men were acquitted, and they also testified uh, to the jurors saying that they should uh, let the the last two men who were tried to get off the hook um, to be acquitted as well. Um, and then, obviously, these two men who were just most recently convicted, but they originally had a mistrial de declared. Um, I know this is all such a winding nonsense process. Okay, so we had the two men that took plea deals, and then there was another trial with the remaining four men. That was like the first trial. Those four men, uh, two of them were acquitted, and then t at that same time, the other two men had a mistrial declared. The two men that had the mistrial declared were these final two men who eventually got convicted. So it's it's been a mess so there's three different outcomes a mistrial and a conviction a plea deal with lenient sentences and a complete acquittal so that appeal i mentioned earlier maybe that's going to even open up a whole entirely different can of worms um it's you know there was questions with the fbi that i'll get into here in a minute but there's now questions of a rogue juror perhaps hours after the federal jury convicted the two men of kidnapping uh or the kidnapping plot of gretchen whitmer the jail Judge unsealed court documents about a potential rogue juror who raised red flags for the defense. Allegedly, the juror's co-worker heard that if that juror was picked, they, quote, would make sure that the defendants were found guilty no matter what. The defense brought this up during the trial. The judge did not agree with the defense, uh, the appeal. Well, the judge didn't agree mainly because it was found out that this was secondhand information. So the guy that reported this about the you know, alleged rogue juror said he heard it from somebody else. So obviously, I think there would have been a bit more uh, interest if it was not secondhand information. Secondhand information still can be valid. Um, it just wasn't, it was taken with a grain of salt and found not to be, you know, the judge just kind of threw that out and didn't worry about it. Um, you know, it wasn't a rogue juror in the judge's mind. Um, however, the appeal very well may be made on the ground of that rogue you know, allegedly rogue juror. Um, they might do some more investigation into that, the uh, the defense may. Or they might, you know, there's always seems to be avenues for appeals. Um, so I'll keep you updated on that. The media, legacy media, saw this as a win for the FBI, not, you know, not only for Whitmer and the prosecutors, but also for the FBI. Because I mentioned that the FBI was almost as much as on trial as these two men were, because there was a lot of questions regarding if this was entrapment, and that really played heavily into the acquittal. So again, you're know, going back to how can you have these three different outcomes? I suppose Adam Fox and Barry Croft Jr., there was some headlines that read they were the ringleaders, so maybe that there were some, um, they were a little bit more involved than the other two men. Not only were they allegedly entra entrapped, but they were also kind of, you know, coerced by these two, quote, ringleaders um so we aren't really sure about that but regardless nationally the fbi have not been super well loved and especially here in michigan and republicans particularly the fbi has been criticized in many stories they sat on the larry nasser story which caused more young girls to be abused by the convicted criminal quote 
FBI officials who possessed this knowledge were in a position to end Nasser's predation, were grossly derelict in their duties, resulting in Nasser sexually assaulting approximately 100 young girls and children between July 28, 2015 and September 12, 2016, and conspired with the highest-ranking officials within the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee and U.S. Gymnastics to conceal this known sexual abuse from foreseeable victims, a claim from five of the former gymnasts said. The FBI um, has indicated it's going to settle with the group of 90 women. This is unheard of. So it has been proven since they are settling that they sat on the story of Larry Nasser. More Michigan and FBI. The FBI arrested a Republican gubernatorial candidate, Ryan Kelly, as he was trending upward in the polls and was in fact the leading early Republican polls before Donald Trump gave his endorsement to Tudor Dixon. So Ryan Kelly was actually leading some of the Republican polls and then got arrested by the FBI for his alleged involvement in the uh, January 6th, um, you know, protest. And then speaking of Trump, you know, giving his endorsement to Tudor Dixon, Trump, um, the FBI, in an unprecedented move, raided the house of the former president and has not since provided any findings worthy of such an action. And then the FBI seemingly seemingly protected Ray Epps, a man at the January 6th riot, who seemed to try to incite further violence at the Capitol. Capitol, common theory on the right, is that there were several FBI agents present at, present at the Capitol on that day. The Justice Department has arrested and prosecuted many individuals uh, that attended the riot, including the aforementioned gubernatorial candidate Ryan Kelly. But Ray Epps, who was shown in videos egging on protesters to enter, enter the Capitol building, has been removed, removed from the list of suspects. And the FBI said, quote, they can't say who Ray Epps is when asked under oath. And then obviously this case where the FBI may have played a role in inciting uh, the plot against Whitmer as has been mildly shown in the two men that were acquitted. And then gosh, this story just broke just very recently on the Joe Rogan experience. Mark Zuckerberg said that the FBI contacted Meta Facebook directly requesting that the Hunter Biden laptop story be suppressed on their social media channels. So pretty much any big story in America, the FBI has their hands in it one way or the other. All right, quickly, we have to get to our big story, our interview with Dennis Lennox. He's going to be telling us all about what's going on with the northern Michigan airports. And we might be losing flights, airports might be losing revenue. Here's Dennis. So, Dennis, uh, can you kind of tell the average person what is exactly happening with these changes that SkyWest is making, how it affects northern Michigan kind of broadly? Well, of course, SkyWest and, you know, people who are making excuses for them and the other airlines are saying that this is all because of a pilot shortage. And I say that's really baloney. Uh, we, the American taxpayer, gave the airlines billions of dollars to avoid this exact kind of situation. Uh, There hasn't been or there wasn't a pilot shortage for the last three years at Pelston uh, or other airports in northern Michigan. Uh, All of these up north airports are setting passenger records, all time records, um, and suddenly there's a problem. I'm not quite sure how SkyWest can say they can fly all of these routes into all of these airports, Escanaba, Sault Ste. Marie, Pelston, Alpena on September 11th, but suddenly something is changing on September 12th that they can no longer do that, let alone the fact that it was done with basically no notice, with practically immediate effect, uh, no community input. 
under questionable legal circumstances. And I say questionable legal circumstances because uh, Sky West, um, and I want to be clear, it's Sky West. Now, sometimes the plane says United or sometimes the plane says Delta and Delta and United get the blame, but it's actually SkyWest operating these flights for the big airlines. Okay. And they have a they, they have a contract uh, through the Essential Air Service to provide service to these airports. Those contracts were premised on nonstop flights to Detroit, and I believe it's against the contract and potentially unlawful. And I've been told that the only way that these schedule changes can take effect is if the community, the county that runs the airport, uh, consented to contractual changes. And I'm not aware that, at least in the case of Pelston, uh, that ever happened. Uh, I know Escanaba's airport, which is controlled by Delta County, uh, their, their county commissioners have said, no way, this is not happening. Uh, we have a contract. We expect you to live up to the contract. Right. So and I'm glad you made the point that this is SkyWest and not any of these major carriers. They're, they're a regional carrier service. Um, but there has been a pilot shortage nationally, but you made the point that there's not been one here locally. So they're trying to kind of put blame on something, in your opinion, that that's may be happening at a national level, but may not be happening here at a uh, local regional level. Because I have seen some comments of people um, on social media or when they're addressing this story saying this is what happens when you have vaccine mandates for, you know, pilots. And this is what's caused the uh, pilot shortage. But you don't think that's actually truly affecting the situation up here in northern Michigan? I think I'm against uh, and I was against the vaccine mandate. But I think those sorts of comments are from people who don't know what they're talking about. Uh, You know, and of course, it's a convenient excuse to blame a pilot shortage, just like everybody is blaming supply chain, even if there's not supply chain issues. And they're blaming the pandemic as an excuse to cut costs. I believe what this is really about. And it's just not me. There are people much smarter than me who follow the industry for a living. I'm not an industry analyst. I just have to be somebody who flies every week. Uh, but SkyWest has made it very clear that they intend to cut their costs, ideally, by ending service to these communities uh, across the country, similar communities, under the Delta or United brands, and instead operating the, their own flights under SkyWest with uh, through another provision of uh federal law and aviation requirements that would allow them to fly uh, planes with lesser experienced pilots, which would cut costs and potentially even fall under the public charter provision, which means airports wouldn't even need to have TSA checkpoints. That's what I believe and what many much smarter people than me believe is happening here. And SkyWest just got caught. Um, I understand uh, from sources that Delta is not happy with SkyWest, um, and they had to get approval from Delta to do these sorts of things, and Delta never gave them approval, which is why we're seeing some of these reports this week that apparently these changes that were just announced have already been reversed, um, at least with respect to Alpina. Uh, we don't have, you know, as of us talking, we don't have anything official for Pelston yet. But there's a lot of scuttlebutt going on that there will be also an announcement being made fairly soon that SkyWest is reversing the Pelston changes. Sure. OK. And we'll keep our eye on that. But 
you know, this would certainly we've kind of addressed and walked through what the exact changes would be. But the, we haven't really talked about the outcome yes, yet, yet. And this would be devastating for people like you and many other people here in northern Michigan who fly a lot. So how does that affect, you know, the, the, the rest of us who don't fly as often? You know, are these airports, theoretically, would they be at risk of closure? Because, I mean, I saw that they could, the airports themselves could lose between 600000 to a million dollars in revenue if this was to happen. Um, that that that's the most important question and nobody really knows what would happen uh we have certainly seen in northern michigan uh because of the pandemic for the last three years a surge in people coming here both from a tourism standpoint right um with record numbers none of these airports are hurting for passenger traffic which you know wasn't necessarily the case not that long ago but also just a lot of people moving up here because of remote work possibilities and if they need to fly into the office or to see customers, they can get on a plane once a month or every couple of weeks conveniently out of Pelston and Alpena to St. Marie and do it. Uh, obviously, for me, it would be devastating. But again, it would be devastating for our tourism industry because, you know, you look at where we're at. This is just not about Pelston. It's about Sault Ste. Marie. It's about Alpena. We're at the heart of Michigan's tourism industry. You've got Charlevoix, Petoskey, Bay Harbor, Harbor Springs, Mackinac Island, Mackinac City. You know, I live just across the county line from Emmett in Sheboygan County. We've got, you know, the Indian River area, the Inland Lakes area. Uh, you know, you've, you've obviously got the Eastern Upper Peninsula. I mean, it's a four-season tourism area. And it would just be devastating to that industry, let alone all of the economic development folks who are trying uh, to create opportunities up here for business investment, uh, innovation and entrepreneurism. No, I know I couldn't keep my job. Uh, You know, if these changes take effect, I I would probably lose my job and my clients uh, or I would have to move because nobody who flies for work is going to be able to uh, uh, take three days to get somewhere for one day's worth of meetings. Because what the way the way this schedule change has been implemented, it will be basically impossible to fly nonstop in and out of northern Michigan unless you want to go on a milk run to Minneapolis and probably have to get a hotel room in Minneapolis and fly out the next day from Minneapolis to somewhere else. Or the one last remaining flight to Detroit, it's the same situation. You get down to Detroit too late in the evening, to basically make any connections. And so what's going to happen is uh, airports will lose traffic, they will lose passengers, and as you rightly pointed out, they will lose funding because the way that these airports, big and small, are funded is by how many passengers they have. That determines all sorts of state and federal money. That's things like runway maintenance money to make sure the runways are safe. We obviously want safe runways. Uh, making sure there's money for TSA checkpoints, expanding terminals, all those sorts of things that taxpayers at the state and federal level fund. So the um, we met, you mentioned earlier that this is under the uh, essential air service because these airports... Um, by the federal government because these airports would not operate um, with profit um, if they were left to their own devices. So if no alternative is found, because there are a couple of uh, airports, particularly like uh, Houghton County, they're looking at a a nine seat airline, even though they're not really too thrilled with that. Um, If there are no alternatives, is this something that the uh, Department of Transportation can put a quash to? Um, I know we talked about how 
they're kind of reversing uh, course maybe in Alpena and there might be an announcement in Pelston. But is this something that the federal government can step in and say you can't do this? Or uh, mm-hmm. I know they said you have to find an alternative before you can before SkyWest can sure, make this move. Sure. But. Well, you know, I, I've written a letter uh, to the Department of Transportation, and um, I'm also pleased that Representative DeMoves, joined by Senator Schmidt and other up-north state legislators, have also taken action on this and written the Federal Department of Transportation because, of course, Secretary Buttigieg is now a resident of northern Michigan, so he should mm. be very familiar with this. Um, you know, it's an interesting question that you've posed. So, the essential air service, Pelston is and it isn't. For for you know May through September, Pelston is not an essential air service airport, meaning those flights are completely unsubsidized, um, and it's you know market forces at play. Okay. From September to May, they are subsidized. I do think this raises a legitimate question: Do we actually need the essential air service subsidies um, in Pelston? The planes are as full as ever. Um, I, I, I think what we're seeing is these essential service air, uh, subsidies can be more of a burden than an asset, uh, because frankly, if Uncle Sam says you got to take it, we got to take it. Um, and, and I think an airport like Pelston, this is not Pelston, this is not northern Michigan of 20 years ago. I think the airport can sustain itself year round under market forces. What I what I am concerned about is the people who run the airport, I think these, you know, airport managers, I don't know what they do all day long, except twiddle their thumbs. Uh, I think they're very complacent and they don't really do a competent job in attracting better air service to Pelston and other airports in northern Michigan. You know, it's an Pelston's an Emmett County airport, right. legally speaking, you- but it's not an Emmett County airport. It's a northern Michigan airport. I'm not a resident of Emmett County. I, I'm probably their best customer or, or certainly in the top five. Um, I live, you know, seven miles over uh, just on the other side of the county line. So there's no accountability to me, even though I use the airport probably more than anybody else in Emmett County. The, sure. the, the, the county commissioners don't seem to care. They don't seem to understand the situation. There's been problems with SkyWest well before this. We always used to get and still do the worst planes, the oldest planes in Pelston. Half the time, the the lavatory, which is airline speak for the bathroom, doesn't work. Uh, you know, on an hour long flight. Um, and so I, you know, I, I I would like to see the point where we can say, you know, we really don't need these essential air service subsidies. Traverse City doesn't get them. Uh, Saginaw doesn't get them. Flint doesn't get them. Um, I'm I'm just not really sure we need them. And I think we would actually get a better product if we had competition and choice in Pelston and SkyWest had to compete against everybody else, big and small, as a as opposed to getting a, uh, you know, a, basically a monopoly. Sure. Well, that's the age old question between, you know, government subsidy and free market, you know, the free market hand at work. Um, do you have last question? You kind of mentioned it. So you you do you were you kind of alluding to the fact that you think that airport managers might be a bit complacent due to the fact that they have that cushion of the federal government's essential services to always theoretically have their back? Um, or do you think it's just? I think it's a little bit of everything. I think it's complacency. I think it's incompetency. Uh, you know, at Pelston, the, the the airline staff and the airlines blame the county and the county blames them. 
for delays in the wintertime. You know, I again, I fly out every week. It always seems like there are more cancellations and delays because of problems with, like, plowing runways and basic airport maintenance stuff that Sault Ste. Marie and Alpena don't have, even though we basically all three airports get the same weather. Uh, I've always thought that's a little weird. Um, I, You know, I think part of it is because these are county government-run airports. What do they know about running a commercial airport? It, it gets back into what does government do well and what doesn't it do well? And, you know, I, I think some of these airport managers just don't want to admit that they're really lousy at their job. It's kind of like battered wife syndrome, the, the person who keeps coming home even though her husband's abusing her every time. So you're continuing to go back to SkyWest even though we know they don't want to serve our airports and they really don't want us as customers. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a better solution out there. I, I, and and when, when Pelston can get by just fine without the essential air service subsidies for four months out of the year, and even in the wintertime, the plane may not be 100% full, which is 50 seats, but it may be 38 to 42 seats filled every single day. That tells me there's enough demand. Those are, those are definitely very interesting questions, Dennis. I, uh, I appreciate your time, and thanks for bringing this story to everyone's attention up here. I know you were quoted in Bridge Magazine, and you, uh, you were speaking behind the scenes as well, so I, I always appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Nick. I'm, I'm claiming victory, and hopefully there will be an announcement pretty soon that these changes are being reversed. Excellent. Well, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks. And that's all the time that we have for today. You're listening to the WMKT Week in Review on 1023 and 1033 FM, 1270 AM Triple Talk, WMKT. I'm Nick Rudy, your host. I'll talk to you next Sunday.